This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Spumalele Zondi. You can find us on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I am with Onelen Zinti, Amanda Machaka and Mosibudi Makura. Get top stories. South Sudan's government troops have killed at least 56 rebels backing former Vice President Riek Machar. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has called on his country's ambassadors to promote the country's economic sectors. Let's get to news first from Onelin Zinzi. Thank you, Spoo. At least 20 people have been killed in three days of clashes between Piggins and Bantu people in southeast DR Congo. Local MP Kalunga Mawaza says the fighting between Sunday and Tuesday was triggered by a dispute over the caterpillar harvest, a common food staple in Tanganyika region in North Katanga. This is the latest escalation in a bloody three-year ethnic conflict. Furthermore, a decision to push back presidential elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo has been criticized by French Foreign Minister Jean-Marc Ayrault. The Constitutional Court on Monday approved a petition by the Electoral Commission to delay a presidential election set for November, allowing President Joseph Kabila to remain in office until April 2018. European Union Foreign Ministers said they would prepare economic sanctions against Congo unless it held presidential and parliamentary elections next year. 
Students at the University of Namibia are the latest to down their study guides and to join the Fees Must Fall movement, which is currently ongoing in South Africa. The Namibian newspaper, Rupa Blicker, has reported that the university's October examination have been postponed after protests. This follows an announcement that students would need to settle their university debts before being allowed to write their exams. Jemaine Grecher has more. The Fees Must Fall movement has again crossed borders into neighbouring Namibia, where students face tuition hikes and struggle with outstanding university debt. Students were informed that they would not be allowed to write exams until they settled their accounts with the university. This prompted students to take to social media using the hashtags UNAM, Fees Must Fall and No Timetable. Namibian newspaper Republikain reports that students caused disruptions on campus tearing up the examination timetables outside the administration building. Management has since postponed exams to try and find a solution. However, protests are set to continue. Jermaine Kricher, SABC News, Johannesburg. A march in solidarity with the Fees Must Fall movement in South Africa will take place in the United States on Wednesday. Students and citizens living and working in the U.S. will march from Bryanton Park to the Southern African Consulate General in New York City. And finally, the International Organization for Migration says it is struggling to cope with the thousands of Ethiopian migrants from Yemen stuck in an overcrowded camp in Djibouti as they await deportation. The migration agency is preparing an urgent appeal to donor in response to the emergency. The initial amount of the appeal will be in excess of 10 million U.S. dollars. IOM spokesperson Itai Vruri. Do forgive us for that. Lack of soundbite. For Channel Africa News, I am Onilin Sinsi. This is Africa Digest. Hello, uh, hi, I'm Salif Keita. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of African Renaissance. Your time is 17.06 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's start in South Sudan, where word that government troops have killed at least 56 rebel backing, rebels backing former Vice President Riyad Machar. But one of Riyad Machar's spokespeople has dismissed this as utterly untrue. And that the government claims that its soldiers have killed Riyad Machar fighters cannot have any basis to tell us more is James Shimanyula. As had been expected, heavy fighting is echoing across various parts of South Sudan. So far, the government in Juba claims through its army spokesman Lal Ruai Kowang that it killed at least 56 fighters loyal to rebel leader Riek Machar. Here is army spokesman Brigadier General to shed light on the rebel casualties. 
over 56 rebels were killed. We captured over 200 different types of weapons and the two places they had attacked remained under our control up to now. They are nowhere to be seen. It was an intensification of operations against government positions by Riyakmachar's terrorists. That was South Sudanese government army spokesman Brigadier General Lala Ruai Kowang. In a related development, one of rebel leader Riyakmachar's spokesman James Gadeti Dak has denied the government army claim that Riek Machar lost 56 fighters. Only eight of the fighters were killed, so says James Gadetti Duck, when I spoke to him in an exclusive interview from South Sudan. It's not true. If uh, up to 56 were killed and they find them on the ground, these must be their soldiers. We only lost six soldiers on our side. We don't know about this uh, big number. It could be their soldiers dead, but uh, he did not want to acknowledge that. He says that uh, the government side lost only eight of their soldiers. You are now saying you did not lose um, 56, you lost only six. Correct. Who is telling the truth now? Whom are we going to trust? I think it is important that you carry out an independent investigation or uh, get from independent source. On our side, what we know is that we lost that number and actually we chased them out in, into Malakal. It was uh, understandable that the loss on our side would have been limited because whenever you defeat an enemy force, it is usually the, the retreating force that incurs a lot of loss. So they came, they attacked us, we we fought them, defeated them, we chased them back into Malakal town. So if you say they, you got uh, if the six dead on the ground, then uh, in the other soldiers, because we did not count if the six on our side. I think they should explain. And how did they count when they were chased? How did they count the number dead? Can you kindly tell our listeners which areas are you controlling? Because from the way you speak and the way I know South Sudan, if Malakal is where the fighting took place, it means it took place in the rural area, in the villages, which presumably, before you even answer me, you are controlling, but the town itself of Malakal is controlled by government troops. Is that right? This is correct. I didn't claim that we, we control Malakal. It is the government controlling Malakal, but we control areas around Malakal. And across the country, we control many places throughout the country. What is happening is that the government controls uh, most of the town and our forces control most of the villages and some towns. Uh, this is what the situation is like on the ground. Looking at uh, Malakal in Upper Nile region, which borders Unity State to the west, does this mean that now we are going to have battles between your forces and the government troops, given that uh, you are controlling most of the villages or rural areas and the government is controlling towns? Yes, correct. And the battles have been going on, actually. From the 8th of July, when uh, President Salukir attempted to assassinate Dr. Egmachar, our chairman and commander-in-chief of the SPLM LAIO, fighting has never stopped. The government forces have been on offensive since then. So fighting has been going on. Yes, but uh, we believe that it is uh, going to further escalate from the situation it is now. It may further escalate because the, the government is on offensive in different parts of the country. That was James Gadetti Dark, one of rebel leader Riek Machar's spokesmen, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. 
Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has defended his record in the fight against corruption, indicating that public servants have failed in their duty to stem the vice. Kenyatta blamed the judiciary for dragging its feet in bringing to book those found culpable and wondered what more he is expected to do to ensure a corrupt free country. He was speaking in Nairobi during a summit called by the government to take stock of its record in the fight against corruption. Sarah Kimani reports. Kenyatta scolded senior government officials who had attended the monthly forums in which he gives a report card of his administration's performance, indicating that they have dropped the ball on the war against graft. I have taken the actions that I can take within the Constitution, respecting the Constitution. When we sit down, and I challenge all the agencies here, they said, oh, we don't have resources, we don't have, we don't do... Again... That is within my power, giving them all the resources, and I challenge them today to stand up and say that we have been denied resources, and that is why we are unable to move. That's not the case. An admittedly frustrated Kenyan head of state blamed public servants, including the police and the judiciary, for runway corruption in East Africa's biggest economy. He warned that the gains made in the purge against corruption risked being lost to politics. A lot of nonsense tell you the truth. Why can't you just say, if it's the Inspector General, he is Amefanya Makosa, he, nah, he, prosecute him. Come on, Uhuru, prosecute me. What's the problem? What have you been denied? Yeah? This is just a political circus. Corruption is just being used as a political circus. How many cases are before the courts of law? Justice. How many cases do you have? Now, do you expect me what do you want, you want you to go and set up a firing squad at Uhuru Park so that people can be happy? Are we not a country that respects the rule of law? What does the rule of law mean? The rule of law means that those who are accused will get justice, and those who are guilty will pay the price. Who releases people on bond here every day? Who does? Eh? What has that got to do with me? What does it got to do? I don't even have power, like I said, to appoint you or to sack you. <laughs> so. International anti-corruption watchdog Transparency International's 2015 Corruption Perception Index ranked Kenya as one of the world's most corrupt countries, ranking 139 out of 168. The same year, Kenyatta declared corruption a national disaster. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwa Nangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest.
It is 17.15 Central African time. Now, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has called on his country's ambassadors to promote the country's economic sectors in their respective host countries. President Zuma was addressing the Heads of Missions Conference, currently underway in Pretoria. The biennial conference brings together all the heads of diplomatic missions abroad to determine a strategy that reflects a Pretoria's foreign policy vision. Despite recent indications of growth, Zuma says South Africa's economy remains confronted with challenges. Here's Amos Pacho. The leadership roles that South Africa has been chosen to play in various organizations demonstrates the respect the country commands internationally. That's according to President Jacob Zuma. He says as marketing and promotion officers, heads of missions must continue to position the country positively and in the process help grow the economy through global economic partnerships. As said, the economy is the IPEX priority. We say so, mindful of the global economic meltdown and also some domestic economic constraints which are making it difficult to achieve the growth we seek. Despite the 3.3% growth in our GDP in the second quarter, our economy is still facing major challenges. The recent announcement by the States South Africa of the loss of 67,000 jobs means that we are not out of the woods yet. We need to redouble our efforts at rejuvenating and growing our economy. Of great concern to the president is unemployment, which stands at approximately 23%, with young people being the worst affected. President Zuma says plans are in place to turn the situation around, and it is for this reason that the heads of missions must familiarize themselves with the nine-point plan to implement the National Development Plan and grow the agriculture, energy, tourism, and science and technology sectors, amongst others. We have established good working relations with the business community, business unit South Africa, and the Black Business Council. We also continue to work with labor as part of a patriotic effort to boost inclusive growth. We had a report back meeting recently from CEOs who are part of the presidential CEO initiative led by the Minister of Finance, Mr. Pravin Gordon, and the chairperson of Telcom, Mr. Jabu Mabuza. These two were appointed when we were meeting with the CEOs of companies to once again discuss the issue, how do we grow our economy in the face of the sluggish growth globally? And we said these two should lead all of us to work out what needs to be done, and it has worked very well. Considerable progress is being made. Business is establishing an SME fund, and also engaging stakeholders in an initiative to create job opportunities for a million young people. The diplomats have been urged to ensure that often chaotic scenes during parliamentary sessions are not understood by the world to denote South Africa's political instability, but rather the maturing of the country's democracy. President Zuma has also denounced the violence that has characterized ongoing student protests for free education. We have to ensure that universities complete the 2016 academic program while we are still finding medium to long-term solutions. The police will also continue to to ensure that those who use genuine grievances 
to promote criminal acts are arrested and face the full might of the law. We are a caring government. We are sympathetic to the message from the students because we share the understanding of the need to ensure that children of the poor and the working class obtain higher education. There is, therefore, no need for violence and the kind of protests we have seen which give an impression that students think government is opposed to what they are asking for. Higher Education Minister Bladens Monday is expected to attend the conference during the course of the week. President Zuma called on the heads of missions to share with him helpful experiences from their host countries on how to resolve the current challenges at institutions of higher learning. I'm Amos Power in Pretoria. 1721 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomela Lezondi, with you until 1800 hours Central African Time this evening. You can find us on Twitter, we are on Channel Africa 1, that is Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Now, the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa, EISA, or ISA, is celebrating its 20th anniversary. The Institute is hosting a continental symposium in Joburg in South Africa that reflects on the theme current democratic realities in Africa. Where are we headed beyond the vote? The objective of the 20th anniversary symposium is to review the current state of democracy in Africa by taking stock of progress and challenges confronting the continent in its trajectory of democratic consolidation. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Dennis Kadima, who is the executive director at ISA. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Dennis. Mm. Um, Dennis, could you just tell us more about ISA and what ISA actually is? Mm. Um, and what would you say um, were some of the highlights in the last 20 years? The highlight is, first of all, that we have moved away from this culture of coup d'etat, where, you know, you, you wake up, you hear that this president has been killed or he has been pushed out, out of power. To, to today we had elections. It has become a routine. So we have made progress on that front. But at the same time, we know that elections on their own are not sufficient, uh, are not a sufficient condition to, to talk about democratic consolidation. You need to see citizen participation. You need to see uh, people being able to hold their leaders accountable. You need space for civil society. Political party must be able to participate in parliament, in making policies, you know, um, you know, so, so there are so many things that must uh, happen, like the media must be free, the public administration must be independent from the government of the day. So we have so many areas 
where more effort must be done, gender representation, how much women, how many women are in the institutions or, or where they can they can be empowered to influence policies and so on. So uh, we have such broad area, uh, such broad areas of work. So the meeting uh, will uh, is being convened. We'll have representative of the academia, of civil society, political parties. Parliament, we even have former head of state of a number of countries who will be attending so that we can discuss and take stock. Mm. Um, let's talk about um, what happens in Africa beyond the voters. That is the title of the symposium we're currently having, which is um, where are we headed beyond the votes? Um, do you think that leaders that are elected in, in place in most places are held, are held accountable by their citizens? And do you think that they listen to their citizens once they've been voted in? You know, one of the challenges actually that we'll be looking in, into is the, the issue of incumbency. Once somebody is elected, they tend to put in place mechanisms to perpetuate their rule. So, they, and then accountability becomes a problem because they'll put in place bodies which are there to serve them to remain in power. I'm talking about cases, and many cases are like that. We, we still have countries where you have more progress. But in general, we still have those kind of challenges where once somebody is elected and they are in power, they are less accountable. They become accountable closer to the election. When they come, they make promises, they show a degree of humility, and once elected, you don't see them anymore. So I think issue of issue of being responsive, being accountable, being, you know, being open, you know, people must have access to information. All of those issues are still ma- are major areas of weaknesses because we are we are still uh, developing democracies. So while we have succeeded, not actually uh, not even everywhere, but when while some countries have succeeded in the electoral processes, the, the, the democratic institutions are still weak, and participation is still uh, lacking, and accountability is not enough. Mm. Um, let's talk about that for a minute, the issue of incumbency that you're talking about. So we're seeing something similar, um, many saying that it is taking place in the DRC, for example, at the moment. Um, we have seen something similar in Rwanda where the president can go on for, for more terms now. And there have been a few such examples across the African continent. What mechanisms are there um, to ensure that power does not then get abused? and um, leaders to not then um, extend their power, maybe externally, outside the country, as you mentioned, that democratic institutions within the country um, struggle to deal with these issues? No, the, you, that question is, is a very difficult one. We, we all can see, it. indeed, you have named the countries, you have seen how Burundi uh, has gone through um, a very challenging uh, period. The, the reality is we have constitutions which say you can't go beyond two terms. But once somebody is in power, they appoint their own judges, and the constitutional court can, you know, unlock that provision and allow them to stand for another term. You know, they can interpret the constitution in many ways, and these are the issues that we'll be discussing. Because uh, if I had answers to this, I would not be would not be organizing this conference. So these are the things that we need to to grapple with to know how to avoid. Uh, uh, these situations where people can um, 
uh, put a place in system a system that perpetuates the rule beyond uh, the, the the will of the people. Mm. Uh, will you perhaps touch on the role that can and should be played by the African Union um, in in elections and post election periods in these countries? Yeah, you see, we talk, we'll touch on that. Actually, we had the AU also. Uh, you know, we have the AU will be represented here, and even head former head of the AU observer missions will be here. We'll have like uh, pres- former president of Nigeria, Jonathan Goodluck. We will have former president of Mauritius, Kasamutim. So we have a group of people to discuss exactly uh, like the African Charter on Democracy of the AU, which uh, is against unconstitutional change of government, but at the same time it also doesn't want anyone in power to to put mechanisms in place to perpetuate unduly their rule. Mm. So these issues be discussed and the AU is represented also to give its side of the, the, the story. The East Africa community is here, Central Africa community is here, uh, and uh, and ECOWAS is also here. Mm. Uh, briefly, who are some of the speakers that will be there? Yeah, as I said, uh, we'll have... Um, uh, president, uh, Vice President Cyril Ramaphosa will give the keynote address and he will open the conference because he's a former, actually he was the first chairperson of the ISA board of directors. Now we have also, uh, as I said, President, uh, former President Goodluck uh, Jonathan, and we also have Kasamu Tim, former president from uh, Mauritius, and the former Prime Minister of uh, Senegal by the name of um, Aminata Toure, and uh, Many other people will be there, academic, you know, international partners who work in the field of elections, like the European Union, the Carter Center, uh, we have NDI, you know, many, yes. many groups are, uh, are attending. All right. And briefly, um, if you can just uh, give us uh, the dates and um, is, it, is it a closed conference? Is it open to the public? What's the story there? It's uh, open to the media. Uh, it, um, it, it will be on uh, the 20th and the 21st of October. So this Thursday and Friday. Open to the media but not to the public. Yeah. All right. Sorry. All right, sure. Thank you very much for joining us on, on the line, Dennis Kadema. Dennis Kadema. Yes, my there. pleasure. There is the executive director of ISA, and he's talking about the 20 years of ISA there, which is the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa, and the symposium that's taking place um, to look at elections and governance in Africa on the 20th and the 21st of this month, which is Thursday and Friday, 17.30 Central African time. Here's Onel Nzinzi with your news headlines. Over 100 of the Nigerian girls abducted by Boko Haram in 2014 appear unwilling to leave the Islamic extremist captors. Students at the University of Namibia, the latest to down the study guides and to join the Fees Must Fall movement currently ongoing in South Africa. And the International Organization for Migration struggles to cope with the thousands of Ethiopian migrants awaiting deportation. Channel Africa News, I am Onilensensi. This is Africa Digest.
Thank you very much. On our latest, 1731 Central African Time, you listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I am Spomela Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, members of the business community have criticized the government of Tanzania for not involving them in the 10-year-long period of negotiations on the Economic Partnership Agreement with the European Union. However, speaking under the cloud of the Tanzanian Private Sector Foundation, the community hailed the government for backing out of the deal noting that its contents would harm the local economy. Now that the East African community leaders have asked for a three-month-long extension of the signing deadline, business people in the country have urged the government to fully involve them in the discussions as they have valuable inputs that could strengthen the country's position in the matter. Our correspondent Gabriel Zakaria reports. Speaking in a meeting called in Dar es Salaam, TPSF officials appealed to President John Magufuli to organize a meeting which brings together experts and the members of the private sector to deliberate thoroughly on the agreement. According to them, since the government started talks with other East African community governments, they were neither involved in nor consulted on how the matter should be handled. Speaking in an interview with the reporters in the commercial city of Dar es Salaam, the director of advocacy research and lobbying of Tanzania Private Sector Foundation, TPSF, Terry Gilly, says the private sector has a role to play towards the country's economy and the action to exclude them is a great fault in its current state. We have a duty and obligation towards our members who are the private sector of Tanzania to discuss uh, deliberate and dialogue on issues that affect uh, the economy or their businesses at large. And recent, uh, recently, uh, you, have, you must have noted that the issue of economic partnership agreement between the East African community and the European Union has been um, in the headlines uh, for many weeks. And it is because uh, the heads of state that met early um, uh, last month deliberated on giving themselves a bit more time before uh, signing or not signing the EPA, a a decision that will be taken in January 2017. So we as the private sector thought that uh, it is important to use this this few months window here before the government takes its decision to discuss on these things, to learn more about what the EPA is about and, uh, and dialogue and try to uh, to learn from the individuals that have been on the forefront of negotiating uh, for EPA. He argued that Tanzania was not capable to start new industries and improve present ones and at the same time compete with the European nations within the 10-year long grace period. Efforts to contact the industry and the trade minister Charles Mujage to explain why the private sector was left out in the key negotiations failed out after his phone rang out with no response. Mr. Gilly father says that the next dialogue to be held in November by the members of business community will give a clear stand and directions for the private sector about the way forward before the signing of the docket. We, we wanted the private sector to know the details of the agreement. We wanted the private sector to know the pros and cons of the agreement. And we hopefully, uh, early the first week of November, we will convene a dialogue of which perhaps in that dialogue, we'll uh, expect the private sector to come up with the position. But in the meantime, it was very important to know before we make a decision. And this was the first dialogue 
which uh, which in made uh, meant to inform the private sector and not and not deliberate. Economics professor Honest Ngoia from Zumba University in Dar es Salaam says the issue of removing tariffs for imported goods will make Tanzania the dump site for their foreign products. The private sector is one of the very key uh, uh, stakeholders in this because the, the whole agreement is about trade mainly and investment and it is the private sector which is indeed going to be uh, involved. For example, the agreement is about duty-free and quota-free imports uh, from European Union. It is the private sector that imports from uh, the European Union. It's also the private sector that is going to export. But also in the due cause of uh, imports and exports, duty-free, quota-free, it is the private sector that is likely to be affected positively or, or... And within the text, it's a big text, 640 pages, uh, there is something uh, to do with uh, uh, capacity building for the private sector enterprise development. Former Tanzanian President Benjamin Mkapa has also for years been one of the most vocal critics of the EPA deal, saying it was a bad agreement for Tanzania and the entire East African region. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. The Conference on Climate for Development has begun its sixth continental meeting in Ethiopia. The initiative was launched in 2000 to create a continental dialogue platform between the stakeholders on climate and development issues in Africa. This year, the theme is the Paris Climate Agreement. What's next for Africa? Coletto Anjoy reports. The Paris Agreement on Climate Change was signed in December 2015. Many expected it to be implemented in 2020, foreseeing the process that ratification of such agreements take. However, in just 10 months, it had received ratification by 50% of the countries and hence will be implemented in November this year. Stakeholders in climate issues have officially begun discussing how Africa will work towards implementation. The sixth conference on climate for development in Africa has officially been opened in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Abdallah Hamdok, the Deputy Executive Secretary of the UN Economic Commission for Africa, explains the climate challenges that must be addressed. First, vagueness in their mitigation ambitions and adaptation aspirations. Second, lack of cost estimates for achieving their adaptation and mitigation. And third, absence of clarity and sources of funding whether conditional, unconditional, private sector or public sector, for both mitigation and adaptation. And fourth, absence of up-to-date national GHGs emissions record to inform the pledge emission reduction commitments. Yassin Fawa, the Assistant Minister for Environment in Egypt, says there is need to merge Africa's plan for implementing the Paris Agreement with its development agenda of 2063 and the wider goal of achieving sustainable development goals in 2030. And now it is time to stand up for the adaptation as a priority that will need to unlock the opportunities through tangible implementation of four pillars climate information, policy and institutional framework, facilitation of actual implementation of specific projects of our continent, 
and enhance finance and investment as related to climate adaptation. The meeting will take three days and is expected to lay out concrete plans that Africa will present at the COP22 meeting in November in Morocco this year when the implementation of the Paris Agreement is expected to begin. Kuleta Wanjohi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. A two-day conference on reporting races underway in Johannesburg. The event is hosted by the Institute for the Advancement of Journalism, the Ahmed Katrada Foundation, and the Canadian Embassy. And it aims to explore how racism in post-apartheid South Africa is reported across all media platforms. The program is also focusing on racism and freedom of expression and censorship. Speakers include one of the country's former presidents, Kalima Motlante, media academics and specialists from afar and the Templeton University in Philadelphia, senior journalists, editors, photographers, radio presenters, social media activists, and members of civil society organizations. The chairperson of the board of the Institute for the Advancement of Journalism, Amina Frenzer, says today is a post-apartheid South Africa. Reporting on racism remains central to tackling the issues. This is part four of uh, three seminars that we did on reporting race. And we looked at various aspects as well, not only reporting objectively, but obviously fairly and ethically and everything that affects reporting race. About your question whether we equipped, maybe journalists in a democratic South Africa are still uncomfortable with reporting race. We come from a bad past, and maybe that is what sets the scene and that is what contextualizes everything, is where do we come from and what damage has it done and how comfortable are we today in a democratic South Africa to report on it. And it is quite obvious that not all of us are that confident and maybe we misunderstand and maybe we use terms and terminology very incorrectly and rather insensitively. But I think also in today's world, There's an explosive form of journalism, for lack of another word. You don't have a journalist in the traditional sense of the word. You have the advent of social media, but you also have citizen journalism. So whatever you communicate, whether it is from a journalistic point of view or from a personal private point of view, that is not private any longer. It becomes very, very public with the advent of social media. So my private comments, it might be barroom talk, it might be my own prejudice, it doesn't remain private. There's a possibility that it will be very public even if you don't want it to be public. And that is when society responds. Society, I think 22 years of democracy, society may not be ready. Uh, But society has also become quite intolerant of what we had in the past. So society slaps down racism when it rears its ugly head. Whether it's in a form of a mindless comment, whether it's a form of real prejudice, for whatever reason, if it's there, society stands up, rightfully says, slaps it down. And the aim is for zero tolerance of racism. We've all seen what racism has led to. We know what it has done in apartheid South Africa. Apartheid was declared crime against humanity, in fact, a heresy. But uh, it still continues, unfortunately. 
we've become a very universal society. We might have conquered apartheid, we might have eradicated racism from our statute books, but it's very much alive and well in other parts of the world. How can this two-day event contribute to just bettering understanding of each other. What is the aim of this event? Well, we're in a room full of delegates who have come to listen to the panel discussions, listen to various people from all walks of society, listening to fellow journalists, for example, listening to academics who are lecturing in journalism, listening to a constitutional court judge, the press ombudsman, for example, who regulates, I would say, media, etc., and listening also to one of our former presidents, Khalima Motlanti. So there's a wide range of people, but also listening to experiences abroad. We have the Canadian High Commission talking about the racism that they're grappling with. We have a lecturer from Templeton University, a black lecturer, I must say, who's dealing with race and how to deal with race in her lecture rooms. And we have heard from her, for example, from the United States, that her journalists are not ready, they are ill-equipped to deal with racism. She says it's easier to deal with gay issues, sex and everything else, but to deal with racism, it is uncomfortable. And I suppose aspects of that are also true in our society. But I must say, we've come a long way in our democracy. We have freedom of expression, we can question, we can dissect it, we can discuss it, and it is happening not only in our public radio and television and media spaces, but it's happening all around it. We are questioning and we are not tolerating racism. In the end, we are collating all of this information, the panel discussions, the questions, the presentations, in a so-called toolkit. And that in itself will be available. It will be part you know, narrative and obviously part of it electronically distributed and uh, that would also become a journalism tool not only for our journalists that go through the Institute for the Advancement of Journalism but for the wider, broader media society. I just find that although you and many of the delegates here have acknowledged that we've come a long way since 94 I got the impression that there's still a lot of different opinions one of the delegates said because I'm black I cannot be a racist one of our most respected analysts in the country said that things are too white. It's the whiteness. He says he's fatigued by the different... I always call myself colorblind. He said there's no such a thing if somebody says they're colorblind. So seemingly there is a lot of varied views of the whole race issue, even in the wonderful Rainbow Nation. Absolutely. There are different views and nobody's going to tell me what to think. I have my own view, but I learn from what I pick up around me. I mean, what the professor and what the analysts and what the journalists and what the delegates said, it's, it's not the whole truth. That's the chairperson of the board of the Institute for the Advancement of Journalism, Amina Frenze, talking to Chinin Kutze. It's time for your economic news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumalele. Good evening. Maritime experts from across Africa are meeting at the 5th African Ports Evolution Meeting in Durban, South Africa. The two-day summit brings together port operators, policymakers and shipping agents to unpack the challenges and opportunities facing Africa's ports. Chair of the Ports Regulator of South Africa, Tabo Mofumadi, says ports are gateways of opportunity for trade and investment. Domestic inflation 
tight construction market, fluctuations in oil prices, inadequate competition among construction companies that lead sometimes to collusion, power and energy constraints. However dire this may be, it has ironically catapulted the gateway debate towards the creation of other ports of entry into the continent. Brazil prefers access to the African continent and its investment opportunities through its direct link with Luanda, while China prefers to deal directly with African states from Beijing. Meanwhile, CEO of Transnet Port Terminals, Carl Sokewa, lamented the low level of trade in Africa. He puts intra-Africa trade at just 11%, the lowest globally. If, if there was something there, they could have handled it in a discreet manner and you know, made decisions after that. If there's nothing there, the extent of the damage, whether he's guilty or not, is not... South Africa's economic analyst Martin Cameron says policymaking is currently so fragmented that it is unlikely that government will come up with a coherent plan to steer the country out of junk bond status. Cameron was, has rather warned that it took India 12 years to get out of junk bond status. He expects such a downgrading for South Africa in December. Cameron says the handling of fraud and corruption allegations against Finance Minister Pravin Gordon is an example of a fragmented government. If there was something there, they could have handled it in a discreet manner and you know, made decisions after that. If there's nothing there, the extent of the damage, whether he's guilty or not, is not what this country needs. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says the economy still faces major challenges despite growing by 3.3% in the second quarter after contracting in the first. He was addressing a conference of South African diplomats who represent the country abroad. Investors have been nervous about Pretoria's commitment to sound economic policy since Zuma changed finance ministers twice in less than a week in December. Fraud charges against finance minister Pravin Gordon have also hurt markets Zuma explains. The economy is the IPEX priority. We say so, mindful of the global economic meltdown and also some domestic economic constraints. The recent announcement by the states South Africa means that we are not out of the woods yet. We need to redouble our efforts at rejuvenating and growing our economy. And Kenya Airways shares rose by 6.5% hours after the pilots' union announced that it had delayed a planned strike to allow room for negotiations with the government and all stakeholders. Kenya Airline Pilots Association had called for an indefinite strike beginning today to demand the ousting of the airline's top management following huge losses and alleged mismanagement. The loss-making airline cancelled several flights on Sunday after some of its outsourced staff downed tools. Now for a look at your financial indicators. The U.S. dollar is trading at 14.96 to the South African rand, at 10.64 to the Botswana Pula, and at 9.88 to the Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.82 to the British pound and at 0.91 to the euro. On to commodities, gold is at $1,259, platinum at $946 an ounce. And the price of print crude oil is at $51.37 a barrel. And that's the latest business news.
Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Lira, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's time for sports news. Here's Mosibudi. Good evening, sports fans. South African Olympian um, champions Wade van Niekerk, as well as Custer Semenya, have been nominated for the 2016 World Athlete of the Year following the heroics at the Rio Olympic Games. Van Niekerk smashed Michael Jordan's world record in the 400 meter, while Custer Semenya dominated the field in the 800 meter women's event as Team South Africa celebrated their only two gold medals at the Games. Now, Van Niekerk has been nominated alongside treble Rio winner Jamaica. Usain Bolt, as well as English medal and long-distance sensation Mo Farah. Osmania has been nominated alongside the likes of marathon runner Aymaz Ayana of Ethiopia and Jamaican sprinter Elaine Thompson. On to football news, Mamelodi Sundown spokesperson Tulani Tuswa says Captain Klompoke Ghana as well as Wenga Keegan Dolly will be ready to take on Zamalek in the CAV Champions League second leg final in Alexandria, Egypt on Sunday night. The duo who played a key role in the first leg were um, with a defeat to the Egyptians 3-0 in Pretoria last week are struggling with injuries but Tuswa remains adamant that they will recover in time to claim their place in the starting lineup. At the same 
same time, South Africa's sports minister, Fila Mbalula, will be part of the delegation that will accompany Mamlodi Sundowns to Egypt. Sundowns depart for Alexandria on Wednesday morning. Well, those are your sports news at the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. South Sudan's government troops have killed at least 56 rebels, backing former Vice President Riek Machar. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has called on his country's ambassadors to promote the country's economic sectors. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Pumela Lezondi, producer Lebo Munamukhulu, technical producer Fisomas Shekho, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for joining us. For comments, send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. It's Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. You can also SMS us plus 27823325905 plus 27823325905. Bye bye.